reading to you from Luke chapter 9, verse 18 to 27. Once when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, Who do the crowds say I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. But what about you, he asked, Who do you say I am? Peter answered, God's Messiah. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone, and he said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Then he said to them all, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. The word of the Lord. You may be seated, and thank you for that reading, Shelley. The kids are invited to kids' church today with Shelby, who's already down there. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing kindness, as what the psalmist proclaimed for us this morning. In this season of Easter, in which we um, sit with the Lord's resurrection, every year we've taken this in our own lectionary to be a time in which we sort of discern our mission together, how we are equipped as Defiance Church. And this has taken several different forms over the years, but mostly often with outside resources. And so this year, the leadership table and I are trying to define what has arisen for us in the past five years, um, and, and with the goal of, of sticking with that for five years, to say, what's come from inside? Now, that's one of the things, as I was talking to a friend this week who's a pastor, is that, that's trying to become clear, is these aren't things that um, we're trying to take from the outside and place upon us, but things that, that were sort of picked among the leaders to say that these are things that seem to be cycling within us. And so the goal is to clarify them. Um, as I said in one of the earlier sermons, this is why I'll probably repeat myself a lot if you've been listening for the last couple of years, because it's saying what we've been saying in sort of a condensed form. And one of the ways we looked at this, and this is that image from the Sermon on the Mount, is to say, in which ways is this church being drawn into Christ in that inner circle, in the ways in which the outside world, which is the outside circle, can watch us? How are we being drawn into Christ? And one of the ways that missional theologians will talk about this is, is bounded sets and centered set communities. And that the, the answer seems to be that we have some way of being both as the church. A centered set community is that we're all being drawn towards the center of whatever our mission is, and that for Christians is this um, union with Christ. We're all being drawn into that. Um, and so anybody who's around that, 
far or close is about the same. But the church in Israel also seemed to function as a bounded set with, with sort of um, heightened walls around their exterior to say who is in and out of exploring those things. And the hard part is, is that, first off, instinctively in the modern world, most often if you vote, everybody's like, centered set, we don't like um, inside-outsider culture, we don't like this, we don't like, um, which of course has its problems if you really want to investigate, like, okay, we're going to do something together. Should the people who don't want to do it together be there? Centered set doesn't always work for common good initiatives. But the church in its history, and Israel in its history, has had times where it moves to heightened centered set, um, and interestingly enough, that comes in times where the, where the outside culture tends to be more closely aligned against it. Um, but what happens when the church becomes centered set is it begins to grow. It's a little bit like, um, if you get this reference, great. If you don't, I'm moving on. Uh, the first rule of Fight Club is you don't talk about Fight Club is that once, you know, okay, the first rule of the church is now it's really hard to get into the church. It was like, well, how do I get in? Um, I want to get into the church. And so as we begin to define this ourselves, and I've used this term before, and it might come up in the sermon once or twice, is as we move from positive world Christianity, where it became sort of something to go to church and to be here was a win for you in your personal life and your business and connections and your culture and community, to neutral world, where in which... Um, uh, we can begin to use language like, all of us know what sin is here and come forward and receive your forgiveness. That's, that's sort of a Billy Graham type thing, that, that the powers of, of positive world were fading, but we we're able to trade on the language still being common enough that people would go, okay, I get what's going on. Maybe I do need my Savior back. To what I would so say is um, negative world, or um, a post-Christian world. And, and the question for Defiance Church in most churches, as I talk to other pastors, is how do you equip a church for a post-Christian world? Or one in which the church is not necessarily viewed positively. Um, oh, you go to church, that might not be a positive thing. We're lucky it's m mainly a benign thing is what research suggests, but benign is, is uh, you'd almost rather be hated than have somebody yawn at what you think is important to yourself. Um, and so how do we define that? And, and the reason why that I think is important is because when you look at Christian history, post-Christian worlds aren't what we've dealt with. We've had pre-Christian societies where we send missionaries. We've had Christian societies where we tried to do revivals and renewals. But post-Christian worlds, um, the first examples we're going to have of such are pretty much um, the Europe, Western Europe, and the United States. And so what we're trying to discern as mission in the post-Christian world hasn't exactly been done. Now, most people, myself included, thinks the answer might come from revisiting what a pre-Christian society was like. And that's where something like this comes from. Perhaps bounded set is maybe a way that we should begin to be thinking about this again. So the first week we talked about the mission. And... Um, I have an image that sort of shows how these will tie together in some way. The first week we talked about the mission and our, the three theological virtues, which are faith, hope, and love. The mission of Defiance Church is defined in our constitution in a wordy way, and leadership said it's great, don't change it, is the mission of Defiance Church is to be a witness to the reign of the triune God, reconciling all things to himself. 
that that's our first sort of thing. And, and here, I think we find what's most common with all churches in some ways. There's different ways of phrasing this. Um, we like witness because it says it's not our work. Um, triune God, Trinity is, is a bigger one here. Um, one of the things I'll say as we go through Psalm 51, which is the text for today's sermon more clearly, is, is Robert Jensen has this phrase that to become a Christian is to learn Christianese. Does anybody know what Christianese is? Yeah, God talk. That's a good way. I was thinking of when uh, I started hanging out with um, evangelicals, they said, it's time for us to have a DTR. And I was like, what's a DTR? Um, Sounds like a Subaru. Um, And they were like, oh, we have to define the relationship. And I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about. Um, And so Christianese is these often weird ways of being Christian culturized in a way that like the language doesn't make sense. But what happens with people who say we've got to cut out Christianese often, which Jensen was referring to, is like you take crosses out of sanctuary. You stop using sin. You stop talking about Trinity because that's a confusing term in the world. And so in Jensen's uh, acronistic way, or uh, challenging way, his way of being a challenge in the world, he went to say is that become a baptized one, which is like peak Christianese, to become a baptized one is to learn to speak the language of the church. And this last week, we heard this in that quote from William Placker, in which he said that, you know, what that act was wasn't just a bad action or mistake, it was sin. Or when you're thinking about how to relate to the criminal next door to you or the illegal immigrant next door to you, that those are bad categories, but the category we have for Christian for that is neighbor that what this language thing is helps us navigate and narrate the world in a Christian way. When you have different words and definitions, this means something. So, to Carla's thing, I hope we don't reclaim to find the relationship, DTR, um, but I do hope we are reclaiming the language of the historic church so that we can talk as Christians, because that will help us know what wrong action is as sin, what love of neighbor is as neighbor. So the first one was the witness. Uh, the mission of Defiance Church is to be a witness to the triune God, reconciling all things to himself. The second were these theological virtues, faith, hope, and love. And as I talked about this, that faith is our trust in God's past acts, that God has rescued, uh, this is Jensen again, and I use this one often, that God is whoever raised Israel out of Egypt and raised Jesus from the dead. That faith is first in these past acts which God has done, which inspire faithfulness within us. We know we belong to a people who have that story, that God has acted mightily in those places, and that is how we relate in faith. Faith um, comes and emerges from this past in which we receive, have known ourselves as baptized self into Christ baptized into his death, and raised into new life. Mighty acts of God. Hope is this future stance. That the world that has had God's action in it and has these cracks and fissures of the reconciliation of all things is not yet fully there. And so as Christians, we have hope that Christ will return and set things to right. And that both of these um, place us in the present in an interesting way past uh, uh, faith in this way in the present in which we can trust in a God who's been good to us. Hope in the present that we know that what is now that seems broken and incomplete will not always be. But in the present, 
love is what we're called to, this love of God and love of neighbor. Um, and so we have past, future, and present sort of embedded in the story of faith, hope, and love. And these are classically called the theological virtues. So here's the image of where we are on our common life journey together, of defining what is the common life of Defiance Church in a bounded set kind of way, um, is witness, faith, hope, and love. And then these five, um, I don't have names for them yet, because it, they're not all practices per se, but they're not all um, uh, things. One of the things I've been m- meaning to say, this is one other side note before we get into the text for today, is that um, uh, there's this great notion in public speaking that you can create action, right? I want you guys all to sign up to help solve climate change. And so the goal of my public speaking would be just to get you to do action. Like, um, and if that's what you're supposed to be doing, I'm supposed to get 10,000 signatures to um, build a park in my neighborhood, then you better be aiming for action in your speaking. The second one is uh, attitude. Um, the idea that, that when we speak, we want to change people's attitudes. And so, um, you know, that this is, um, if you were in a conversation about um, neighborhood uh, policing, right, you'd be having a conversation about attitude. How do we have a different attitude about this? If you were um, in a conversation about um, Uh, I think environmental concern is a good one because you're not actually just wanting people to have a different action, but you want them to have an attitude that says, what am I wasting? What am I doing here? These are ways in which you aim your talk. But the third way is atmosphere. And an atmosphere is something you create that people can move into. And so when I think about what these things are for Defiance Church, I think we're trying to set up, uh, not aiming for specific actions. There are actions that come out of the Christian life. They're not a, just a shift in attitude, but in our worship, in our being together, we're trying to create an atmosphere. And it makes it hard because it's the least measurable of all those three things. Um, but I think it's one in which we come together to participate, participate in this atmosphere of our life together. And we find our way in that. So the first one we did last week, which was word. Um, this was the image we used for word. Um, it was how the word is in our community. And, and one of the things that I meant to say is each one of these is most grounded in the Psalms. And last week's Psalm was that, that the word is a lamp unto my feet. And if you remember that image of the old woman reading her Bible, that it's an illumination thing for us in the world. Just as one last reminder of last week, I can only the question, uh, answer the question of what I am to do if I can prior, answer the prior question of what story or stories do I find myself a part of. That, that this quote is naming that word is how we answer how we're supposed to be in the world because it tells us what story and what stories we're a part of. And because these are our stories, we have different ways of thinking and being in the world. But today we come to confession. This is the image I have for confession. This is the most abstract and artistic I get. So, um, wow, nobody, (laughs) it's it's, it's, it's reverberation, it's speaking, it's audio. I'm sure you all got that, but I had to explain it to myself 10 times. It's this way in which we speak, we talk. Um, Confession is this part of our common worship and our way of being together in which encapsulates everything that pretty much isn't word or table. Our singing is our confession to God. Our prayers are confession to God. Our confession, 
is confession to God. The role the creed prays for us is this confession. We confess so many things when we get together. We are those who confess what God has done. Confession is this language that sort of encapsulates much of this. It was interesting because when I asked the leadership table members to each send me back a list of five words that they would pick, all five of them sent, or all four of them sent back the word confession, um, which I was like, okay, didn't see that coming. Um, uh, would have been on my list, but I didn't send them my list first. And, and confession, you know, we have this notion in, in Christianity of taking it in that just one way, is that we confess our sins. But the two other readings we did to today, the main reading for today is Psalm 51, um, is that if, uh, from what Brian read from Romans, that if we confess with our mouths and believe in our hearts that Jesus Christ is Lord, we shall be saved, that, that we confess our faith in that way. What Shelley read to us um, was from uh, uh, Luke, uh, this confession of who Christ is by Peter, famously called the Confession of Peter, in which Christ specifically asked Peter, who do you say that I am? And he says, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. He confesses his faith in who Jesus is. And so confession is this much more expansive term than what we think it is. And the reason why I picked Psalm 51 today is because I think it brings us right up to the edge of what confession can be in its most expansive sense. That this is one that, that um, is a blown-up picture of what we mean by reconciliation. It's a blown-up picture of what the Christian life is like. It's blown-up picture of what it means to be the church, the new humanity in the world. So the goal for the remaining time today is to walk through Psalm 51, but not read it as if um, the, it, the context in which it's subscribed to in the, the, the beginning is it's the Psalm of David when he's caught in a shin with Bathsheba. And I think there are interesting things you can pull out of it read in that way. Um, but if you read it as just your regular psalm, um, it becomes much more expansive. Um, and to be clear, you can read it in both those ways. This is not to say one is better than the other. But for today, we want to hear this as if, what does this mean for us as a community? As our confession? Is this our way of being? And one of the things that, that, that's important to remember is, Chris and I talked about this when we say, I believe in God the Father. In the creed, creed we use I language. And every now and then, somebody will come up to you and say, shouldn't we say we believe? Um, it's not an individual thing, isn't it? Um, and Rowan Williams, the former Archbishop of Canterbury, has this beautiful way of saying that when the church says, I believe, it speaks um, in unified as a single body. We believe, when I say we believe things, I mean most of us, maybe half of us. And sometimes I'm just like trying to pretend we believe that, so maybe you guys will join me in it. But when we stand together and say, I believe in God the Father, the Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth. We speak with one voice because it's a, it's a singular community that speaks that. It's not a bunch of individuals sort of all saying, yes, we believe that, but it's one entity, the body of Christ in the world, confessing what it believes. The reason why that, I think, is important for Psalm 51 is because we can break Psalm 51 from its individualized context with that same thought. Well, this is about one man's confession of sin. But when we hear, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, 
the individual is the plural community. This is not a statement of just me praying it alone at times when it is, but is a prayer of the church and that knows its brokenness and knows its way in the world. So to start at the beginning, have mercy me, on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. We'll stop right there. Um, three claims for grace right at the start. Oftentimes we think when we're caught in sin or when other people are caught in sin, we have to start with like, my sin is something that I need to deal with. But the psalmist, the writer of Psalm 51, starts with the idea that there is a God out there that is both um, merciful, full of unfailing love, and compassionate. These terms, uh, the first one it would be similar to gracious if we translated it literally. The second one is the Hebrew word, which we've used several times, has said. Um, which is unfailing kindness. It's probably the best Old Testament sort of analog to grace, is that it's this notion that God is unfailing for us. And the last one, which beautifully, if you were to sort of really literalize it out in a dictionary way, um, according to your motherly compassion, womb-like compassion is the way. It, it's actually, motherly is, is maybe a bit more than it would say. It's womb like compassion. It's, it's this interior compassion. And the psalmist starts, we know this is a great confession of sin, but with one whom he can already say, have mercy upon me, O God. One whom he knows as merciful. There's this great um, interesting thing that I think will come up as we move into a post-Christian world is that oftentimes in that neutral world, there was this idea that if we could get you to admit that you're sinful, then you could come to God. But today, I think to convince people, or today and going forward to convince people that they've committed wrong action, I don't think leads logic to like, to like oh yeah, I need a savior. But there's this notion, and we can see these, these instances throughout the Old and New Testament, that bad news doesn't always come first in conversions. Sometimes people see the goodness and beauty of who God is in community or gift or life, and that inspires them to know their sinfulness. But oftentimes, if I were to give you a track produced by anyone, it would start with trying to convince you you're a sinner, but not in the goodness and greatness of the unfailing God. I personally don't think there's a right answer to that question. So don't hear me saying like, we're doing it all wrong. There are people whom they will go, oh, my action is so grievous. And I understand that this is something I need help from, from one outside of myself. I cannot do this from the inside. There are other people who, who the crack will come because of some beauty in the world, some goodness in the church, some truth beyond. Have mercy on me, oh God according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. What the psalmist asks for next are three words for sin. So we have three, three words for grace at the beginning of this. And, and I don't want to, uh, bl- just to say, keep in mind this is about communal confession for us as we're studying this morning. So it starts with three words for how God is gracious to us before we acknowledge where we are in this. 
And the three things that the psalmist says next are, blot out my transgressions, wash away my inequity, and cleanse me from all my sin. The images here, uh, three different sort of words for sin. The last one is that classic one most people are familiar with. It means to miss the mark. The second one, um, uh, inequity, is, is to be bent over. Um, St. Augustine and other church fathers talked about sin as a scoliosis of the soul, that you're bent in a certain way, uh, and that bentness can only be cured by God. Um, And so this scoliosis of the soul is that second one. And the first one is um, transgressions. That's the one closest to wrongdoings, but it's in the plural. And as we read this psalm together, as as exploring what confession means for us, um, there is no instance in which this is what I did. It's an acknowledgement of the whole world that's bent away from God. In David's context, we can read it as an act, but if we read it freed from the, the subscription, the superscription in front of it, which evidence suggests may have come later, um, it begins to say that this is an acknowledgement in which this place is broken. First, we ask for mercy from the God we know is full of mercy. Second, we ask that the actions, the ways in which this world is distorted, be blotted out, that they would be healed and washed away. And these are all... Um, ritual of the Old Testament languages, but here they're being taken in a spiritual way, which is almost like Christianity. (laughs) Um, This is one of the, this psalm, I think, is one of the, this in Exodus 32 to 34, which is tied closely to it, are the places where uh, I think Peter Enns wrote his book, Do We Need the New Testament? Because so many Christians will be like, do we need the Old Testament is the question. But if you read Psalm 51 with the eyes of Christianity, it's like, it's all right here. Um, what else could we do? Um, the spiritual language that they practiced in the temple, the psalmist is asking, um, and so sacrifice and all these things as we go through it, he's asking be applied to his soul, applied to the scoliosis that he experiences and the wrongdoing he's gone through. Not through goat's blood and the temple, but through um, what God can do to himself. For he knows his transgressions, and his sin is always before him. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you write in your verdict and justifies when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Here the psalmist acknowledges what often we would call original sin, for one, but this notion that this is the action that seems to take up most of the world, sin and dysfunction that surrounds it. As I aim to leave it, it's ever before me. Um, If you are struggling to give up, um, let's pick the hardest and most difficult sin to give up, maybe in North America, consumerism, um, there's no place you can flee from it. Turn on your TV, it's back in your house. Pick up your phone, it's going to come through an ad. Um, uh, Walk down a city street and the billboards will proclaim it to you. My sin is always before me. And against you and only you have I sinned. This one is not to say that sin isn't against neighbor. But this notion that goes all the way back from the book of Genesis is our original sin was the saying that we want to be like God and be able to define reality. 
as I've said, I'll, I'll repeat myself from what I've said in the past, is that the, Wendell Berry has this wonderful phrase that the, the next great war will be between those who decide to live as creatures and those who decide to live as machines. Rowan Williams, again, we need to recover the ancient art of creatureliness in who we are. Here, this psalmist is proclaiming that he is one who is, is bound in offense against this God whom he has already announced he can trust in to provide mercy. But he knows there's no other way out of this other than going to that one. And that in our creatureliness, we have created a world in our rebellion in which these things stand before us. And so this God is right in its verdict and justified when he judges, that this God is correct in those ways. If you want to know perhaps what the most controversial part of this psalm is to proclaim that the one outside of us is right in his verdict and justified when he judges. There is something that we just can't do ourselves. And this is the way that doorway is open here. The next portion I really think is, is quite wonderful. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught wisdom in that secret place. God taught that wisdom to us before we were born. The psalmist doesn't have any sense in which we might be able to absorb it. But if you're going to say, have mercy on me according to your unfailing love, the notion that it's something that is being broadcast to us. C.S. Lewis talks about it in the Screwtape Letters, that the radio waves are jammed, but it's something that God is trying to broadcast to us the secret wisdom that we can be healed. The psalmist goes on that they would be cleansed with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my inequity. Here the psalmist again ramps up what it means to be cleansed again. And in this place comes joy and gladness. It's it's that perhaps the big crack in the psalm here is one worth sitting for it as a sec, is that this psalm proclaims that in our healing and that God hears us, that we will be ones of joy and gladness. One of my friends who's a writer has a book called Defiant Joy. And she's like, I, she came up with that before she knew we had changed our church name. And she was like, I just love your church name. And I was like, well, I love your book name. Um, and so let's be friends. Um, but this idea of like defiant joy in the world, knowing that there's something beyond what is, is broken and crippling us. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. We hear Christ praying the psalm here. We hear this idea that the, that the bones would be broken, that they would come back in resurrection to rejoicing. And so we've heard the psalmist proclaim all of these things up until now and hide your face from my sins and blot out my inequity. This is where um, I think in some forms of Protestantism in the modern world, it's like, we are done here. Congratulations. Have a good day. Go out um, and, uh, the, uh, and participate in what Dallas Willard calls the gospel of sin management. Just aim to sin a little bit less. Um, uh, that's all we have for you. But Psalm 51 takes this amazing term, create in me a pure heart, O God. Renew in me a pure heart. 
make something in this broken place again. The early church fathers talked about Christ because they were confident in the resurrection that God has fashioned a new humanity in the church. Create in us new hearts, O God. Create in this place where we gather around your broken body and blood a new space for us. The Hebrew word bara here is, is, means create, but we have this tendency to say, well, we're co-creators with God and this, that, and the other, but that's probably not true because create in the Old Testament is only used in reference to a work that God does. We fashion things. You can see that in the book of Exodus. We, we make things, but create The act of creation is something that only comes from the divine. Create in me a new heart is to say what you have spoken and done in Genesis 1 in creating the world, do that in me. Make something new there. Self-help would be a nice way to sort of solve this problem, but it's not what God has provided for us. We invite in God's spirit and renew a red steadfast spirit within me. And what becomes clear is do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me, but restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant a willing spirit to sustain me, is that it's in constant communion with this God on how this is sustained. It's moving into communion with that. It's not um, a one-shot thing where it's like, okay, I'm great. If your sin is ever before you and you're asking God to create a new heart in your community and in your lives and in this space, in our confession together, it's going to take us to be in communion with that spirit as we go forth. And this is where, if it were just here, if the temple curtain were torn and the gospels at the ends, if the spirit was just in one place, we'd be hosed. But the Spirit is freed in a way, and we can see it in Pentecost. Uh, The phrase that I love to use for the way that the Spirit interacts with us is circumambient. The Spirit acts circumambiently within, through, and around us as we go out, all-encompassing into the world. And we can maintain communion with that. Restore to me that joy of your salvation and grant a willing spirit to sustain me. Why do we sin again? Psalm 51 is smart enough to know that we need and lose communion with that thing when we sin again. And we go back to the beginning, and that beginning is not a bad thing. St. Augustine, I I don't often pick up his commentary in the Psalms, but I did last night, and he had this amazing phrase that says, this is not an example for you how not to fall. This is an example for you to rise again after you've fallen. And I just thought that was worth pondering for days. That what we have in Psalm 51 is not a training for us to be those who are immune from this and to never fall, but an example to be restored again. He said, and if you think about ways David's been used in contemporary politics, but he says, you know, um, if you think, well, David did this, it's not so bad, but David hated this and became the one who had the joy of his salvation restored to him. You miss half the example. And then the, the, the second hinge, which goes into what is our mission as defines church, is, is to, to be a witness to the reconciling God. This is how we become witnesses to that. But the psalmist, again here, it would be a nice place to end this. But it says that as the one who has sinned, as the one who has three words for my sin, as the one who has broken bones because of this, after my joy is returned for me, I will teach your ways 
to crown dressers so that sinners will turn back for, to you. My tongue will sing of your righteousness. And if you open my lips, Lord, my mouth will declare your praise. I've used this phrase before that the church becomes a repentant missionary in the world. We're the ones where know we have repented and received that joy back. We don't say we're the ones who have never done it. We're the ones who have said we know this cycle in which we can now have our mouths open to instruct again. This person, the psalmist, is given a new mission after this point. It wasn't like, you've been so broken, you have time out for a little bit longer. But then when God heals you, you go out and you instruct others. Singing, back like I said, confession covers so much of what we do. I will sing of your praise and my mouth will declare you. We are open again in the psalmist's words that this transforms us into a people who has a mission. I was talking to a friend who was having pizza with this week, and he was struck by this phrase we've shared here from the New York Times writer Elizabeth Brewing, which is in a world that demands constant atonement but offers no forgiveness, we're doing something unsustainable. That phrase, in a world that offers constant atonement, be sorry for everything that you are. Um, and we see this in discussions, contemporary discussions around race or sex or gender or all these things. But even just like um, you've done something once, you made an error on Twitter or most often Twitter, don't, which brings us back to the first rule of Fight Club, never tweet. Um, uh, but the, uh, it's constantly demanding that you atone for anything you might have done greatly wrong or minorly wrong or the great phrase microaggressions, which is not to say none of this is important. But what it holds out is not an offer of forgiveness, but just more repentance and more atonement. But what the psalmist receives here is not just forgiveness, but empowerment to go and teach, to go and sing, to go and praise. Um... You do not delight in sacrifice or I'd bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. You can't buy your way out of this. There is no, when I used to lose something, particularly in my anger and angst when I was a younger Christian, I'd say, God, I'll never do X again if you help me find it, um, which is big of your pastor to admit, I'll tell you that. But, but two, um, uh, we do that in all sorts of ways. I mean, that's the most benign, obvious way, but like we have this way in which, okay, but if this works out, I'll never do it again. I'll buy my way out of this. God, if I could offer you all the burnt offerings and sacrifices, that's not what you take pleasure. My sacrifice, oh God, is a broken spirit, a broken and cried heart. God, you will not despise. Communal confession. Defiance Church's sacrifice is a broken and contrite spirit that God will not despise. The last two verses are where this I, we things becomes pertinent because they don't seem to be, have been in the original, but they're about how Zion will prosper and that God will rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. The church is going to navigate a post-Christian world. It's going to be on the act of God receiving the sacrifice and rebuilding it in its place. Who's going to guard the walls and make them safe? 
and restore all that has been fallen and broken. God, who hears our words as we come in confession to him. I had so many slides and quotes today that we didn't get to any of them. Um, there's some on the back of the bulletin. I'm trying to see if there's any worth. Um, we'll, we'll end with this. The, the I and we portion of this. As we hear this as sort of a singular plea, it's actually the plea of our community. What role does confession play as one of those five things at Defiance Church? We know who God is. God is one of great compassion, of womb-like love, of grace. We know that God has defined the world in such a way that there are actions in which we participate in and go in that go against God's will. And, and, and yet, in defiance of that world, this is where it connects to sort of our name, is that in defiance of that world, we want to aim and become those who have a new heart and a new life placed within them. Something renewed within us, something from the outside that God places in our sphere. Through baptism, we are brought into the death of that thing and raised into new life. We become, and, and, and this is the most depressing image for it in its greatness and in its gloriousness, so it's not just depressing. We become those in the phrase of Romans 7, which we didn't read today, but as who will rescue us from this body of death? The decay and destruction that responds, surrounds us, that which distorts and claims everything. Who will rescue from that? wretched person that I am, who will rescue us from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God, who delivers me through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let us pray. God, you have given us so much in confession, namely that you'll hear us. And as the one who hears us, we can proclaim that you are merciful and kind and have compassion for us, unfailing love. And so in that hearing, we have confidence in naming the ways in which our world is broken and astray, in which we have broken.